Good morning. It's 9 30. It's time to get started. I'm Walter Spires. I'm delighted to be with you this morning again and, and thankful to have you with us. So, uh, before we get started and, and dive back into the second part of this message on motives, let me pray us in. Father God, thank you for uh, this day, uh, another day to come and hear your word and uh, study together and lean in and listen to what your Holy Spirit would have to teach us today. And allow us to do that, clear our minds from all the clutter and the stuff of the world that just uh, bogs us down, worries us, gets in the way. And right now, for the next 30 minutes or so, would you just give us clarity of thought and open minds and ability to just absorb what you have for us. And thankful that you do come and meet with us when we come together for Christ's sake. Amen. All right. Well, last time we started on motives and we talked about what a motive is. And I'm going to review very briefly because we have a lot to cover. We may get not get through all of it today and finish up the third part next week. That's okay. I'm not looking to run over and I'm not looking to short sheet anything. I want to give you everything from the fullness and the richness of the Word of God as it talks about motives. Our motives, uh, wrong motives we focused on last time. Today, we're going to focus on the motives of God. The Lord took me deep into that. So we're going to spend our time today there. If you weren't with us last week, you can see this. You can read it, watch it, uh, listen to it, all three formats. You can get that on the website, onlyjesus.life. You can sign up for the podcast by the same name. You can get the PDF and download it. We try to make this available for your convenience so that you have it any way that you want it, whether you're walking and want to listen to something, which is a podcast version, or you have time to sit and watch the video, or you just like to print things out and have it to read when you have a chance to do that. So that's what we do every time I teach and speak so that we can help you and serve you and equip you uh, to, if you're in Christ, to help you grow closer and go deeper in, your, in that relationship. And if not, to challenge you and ask you why you have not received him as your Savior. So we started talking about motives, and the definition of motive was pretty simple. It's just a reason for doing something or not doing something. It's a cause. And the, I guess from a psychological point of view, we are motivated by one of two things at, at the very basic level, by uh, avoiding pain or finding or seeking pleasure. And most of our motives, whether they're right motives or wrong motives, are, motives are, are around those two things, avoid pain, seek pleasure. We looked at our motives last week in terms of wrong motives that take us down wrong paths. And we looked at four of those, and I'm just going to mention them briefly. We're not going to go back into that, and we dove deep into this last time. The first one was we're motivated by fear, motivated by fear. And we noted on the very front end that fear can be a very positive motivator, right, to avoid uh, fire, pain, to avoid danger. So fear can be a very positive motivator. But we looked into the word and we saw we're right on the second or third page of the Bible in Genesis 3, where Adam was caught in a sin and fear became a very negative motivator. He was afraid and he was hiding from God. We talked about Abraham telling Sarah, his wife, to tell these uh, Egyptians that she's his sister so he doesn't get in trouble. And so we talked about that as a negative motivator because Adam, I mean, Adam was afraid, but Abraham was scared to death. He not only did it there, but he did it again a second time. And then I noted that his son Isaac did the same thing later on with Rebecca, his wife. Men motivated by fear. 
The second one was that uh, we were motivated about opinions of ourself, whether they're uh, very high self-esteem out of arrogance and pride or very low self-esteem when we don't think anything of ourselves. And we looked at verses in James to talk about that um, and, and Paul's admission in Romans that we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. That's pride. But we also shouldn't think more lowly of ourselves because we are created in God's image, as we're going to talk about this morning. And we have great reason to be excited about not who we are, and we talked about this several weeks ago, but whose we are with a capital W. And so if you're struggling in that issue of having a poor self-esteem and you're afraid and what you do is everything that you do, your motivation comes from trying to please others. Well, that gets into the third one. You're so worried about the, you have such a low self-esteem that you're motivated by and, and everything you're concerned about in your life revolves around what other people think or say about you. And so many people struggle with this. This is one of the big ones. I think the last one is the biggest of ones I've seen in my ministry and in my life personally and things I've gone through where I'm just worried about and thinking about what do they say? What do they do? What do they think? And, and my self-esteem gets tied to what other people say or who they say I am. And we know as Christians that is absolutely wrong. And I did a rant, which I won't go back into today on social media, talking about how so many people with social media, whether it's the bullying side or the negative aspect of it, and we did note there's a positive side to it where people are nice and encouraging, but there's a huge negative side where people are bullying or saying bad things or thumbs up, thumbs down, liking you, not liking you. And, and what I touched on briefly was there's a real addiction to that. There's an absolute addiction to social media for those who wake up looking at their Facebook stream or Twitter or other things, Instagram, and go to bed with it and, and look at how many hours you spend on that. And that was the third one. And then the last one, was the past failures, motivated, living in the past, were motivated by those things that happened in the past and too often failures. And I've seen that so much with men and women dealing with issues from uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, uh, homeless, living in shelters at rescue missions, uh, men in prison. The past just overwhelms them and holds them down. Remember I used that phrase that the past is a prison without bars? The past is a prison without bars that holds us down, that keeps us from going forward. There's nothing there to keep you from walking forward. There are no real bars like, the, like there are when I'm down in a prison cell block. But you're stuck there. You're chained there. You're frozen in your past because of what's happened before, and it holds you back. So today we're going to move on into, I think, one of the most interesting studies that I've ever done and title this, The Motives of God, The Motives of God. Now, that may sound a little bit uh, pretentious on my part. I don't believe it is. I think when we, when I, when we dive into the scripture that, that supports all I'm going to teach today, I think you're going to really have a better understanding of the Trinity, because we're talking about the motives of the Holy Trinity, the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Where did that come from, and, and how do you know because this is a motive is what, what God's thinking. How do we know the mind of God? God has said, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways are higher than your ways and they are. But the Bible is God's revelation to us of what he's thinking, what he thought in the past, what he thinks about us, what he thinks going forward, what he thinks about so many things. And so the Bible is that expression 
of God and who he is, his nature, his character. He reveals so much about himself we could not possibly absorb it in a lifetime of study. But he reveals enough, and he, by the way, doesn't reveal everything about himself. He couldn't because he's infinite, eternal, self-existent. All these things we know about God that are just mysterious, and we don't understand them. And, and really, quite frankly, with human minds, we can understand them, and that's okay because God's revealed enough in his word about himself and his nature and about his love for us and about who he is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we can know and trust him and take him at his word. So let's get started. The first place we're going to look, obviously, is in God the Father. And I'm going to give you each one, each person of the Trinity, and each part that they play in it, because they are three in one and yet distinct in nature and personality. Um, it's just a, it's a mystery. It's, it's three in one. There is not, there is a God, one God, but that one God exists in three persons or personalities. Tough to understand and hard for people to really grasp it. And so I hope today helps you better understand that. May not get you all the way there. There are some religions that believe that there are three individual things and that God uh, is one and, and the other ones don't exist or that Jesus was not God, that Jesus was a man or a prophet. All kinds of other things that you will read as you go through denominations or other religions. We're going to focus on what the God of the Bible teaches us. And as Christians, this is what we embrace. And so where do we start? Well, we start in the very first place with God the Father. In the very first verse of the Bible, remember we taught this last year, early last year, on the, the very first words of the Bible, in the beginning God created. And that was bara barashit Elohim. And that Elohim was God. And at that point, God introduces himself. Now, what's interesting is we talk about God the Father, and, and that's about relationship. You see, the first aspect of God is he call, he's called Father. Now, if you study, as I have, and you keep looking around trying to see where is that revealed, where is that taught, it isn't, it isn't taught anywhere until toward the end of the Levitical law and the end of the time of Moses. It's late in Deuteronomy. And in fact, it's in Deuteronomy 32.6, and I have that verse for you here. And this is Moses speaking. This is Moses' song toward the end of his life and the end of all things for him because he's not allowed to go into you know, the, the, the promised land. Remember that God stopped him, wouldn't let him go. And we'll go down that trail right now as to why, but he didn't. And so he let him see it. He let him go out and see it from a mountain and look over and see it. And Moses wrote this song before his death. And in it, in, 30, in Deuteronomy 32, uh, verse 6, he said this, is not he, meaning God, this is Moses speaking, is not God your father who has bought you? This is the first word, use, first use of the word father in the scripture. It's, it's trying to help the Israelites understand, look, I'm going to go away. I'm not going to be here anymore. But God, who is your father, will take care of you, will protect you and provide for you. So he's introducing that relationship. And we know it, it was really revealed with Adam and Eve. Because God chose to create men and women to come in and be in relationship with him. And that's what God the Father is all about. That key word is relationship. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, first part of 28, and I shared this with you many times. I alluded to it earlier. God said this. And again, it's speaking to the Trinity amongst themselves. It's the first revelation of that 
It's right there on the first or second page of your Bible, depending on where verse 26 falls. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, we stop there, and if you're a baby Christian or new to studying the Bible, you want to stop there and say, well, wait a second, time out. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. <laughs> Who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? This is the period of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of everything, everything that came into existence, God brought into existence. We're going to talk about that in a minute because Jesus was there and the Holy Spirit was there. But God created, so in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And he goes on to talk about what he did on each day. But when he finished up that on the sixth day, he said, let's make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us create man and woman. Who's he talking to? Well, that, that's the first reference to the Holy Trinity. The us, the plural pronoun there, the our and us is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because they were all present at creation. They were there. So God the Father created us, and it's a familial relationship, right? When, when Gigi and I, quote, created children, I was their father and she was their mother. And we created that relationship. That's what it's known as. Why? I don't know. It just goes all the way back through history and time because God chose to be uh, known as our father in relationship. It helped the Israelites to understand. It helped those people who were following after some spirit thing to understand that God was interested in a relationship with you and I. When you teach people who are struggling with self-esteem, like we talked about some last week, it should be such a great encouragement to, to lock onto these verses and understand what it means. <laughs> that God did not need us. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit weren't sitting around in eternity past or whatever that looked like. I have no idea. But they weren't sitting around thinking, man, I'm lonely. We need some people in this world to help keep us company. Let's just create people and lay it out there and make a world and you know, just see what happens. It wasn't like that. God is intentional in everything that he does. He doesn't make mistakes. He's never late, never early. Things that drive me crazy because I always think he's late answering my prayers. Where are you? Step it up, God. <laughs> but God does not defer to me. He is sovereign and I have to defer just like you do to him. But the great thing about understanding God the Father is this. He wanted to be our father. He created Adam and Eve. He gave them a perfect world. They were perfect. There was no blemish in them. There was nothing wrong. They were perfect, living in a perfect world, in a perfect garden. Everything was perfect because God is perfection. He intended it to stay that way, and he was just going to be in relationship with them. He said, here, I've laid it all out for you. You can do anything you want, everything you want. There's only one rule. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. It wasn't an apple, by the way. And you know the story. I've told it to you many times. But see, that's a, that's the story of a relationship between a father and his children, the first children, Adam and Eve, being broken. And that's why we refer to Adam as our father, earthly father, and, and Eve as our mother. They were the first father and mother because they had children and then children and on down. You see, it was about relationship. And the thing that a lot of people have difficulty grasping is God as a concept seems so out there, so, I don't know if ethereal is the right word, but just, just hard to hold on to, something that you can't grasp. Why? Because God is spirit. 
And God said he's spirit. God is not flesh and blood. He's not like Adam and Eve. Jesus became flesh and blood so that we could understand it. Why did he choose flesh and blood people to um, be in relationship with him, exist and, and, and really have total dominion and leadership over this world, his creation? I don't know. I don't know. It just says right there in Genesis 1:26, he's finished up all this other creation. And on the sixth day, let, let's make man and woman. Let's make them male and female. Now, I've used that verse in that passage before, also talking about some of the issues we get into today in the area of sexual perversion. Right here, clearly, again, page one of the Bible, God says, I'm creating men and I'm creating women. I'm creating males and females. And, and I'm dictating how that happens. He does. He did. And to go against that, to try to say that God really screwed that up, um, again, that's a perversion and that is a sin. Uh, there's lots of other sins, but, I'm but as we look at this one, this is where it comes from. God said, let's create man and woman, male and female, and he laid out how that was going to happen. And we know that how that happens with the chromosomes in the last one, dictating the sex, male or female. So God the Father wanted to be in relationship with you and I. That ought to be a great motivator, that whether you really grasp him or understand him as much as we'd like to, we just need to hold on to and rest in the fact that God wanted a relationship with me. He wanted to be my father, just like he wanted to be the father of Adam and Eve, the father of all that went on, the father of a nation, the father of a nation. I gave you that verse of the first use in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 32, 6. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus uses the word father. That's the Sermon on the Mount. He's closing out the Beatitudes. And in Matthew 5, 16, he closes that section of the Beatitudes with that we would that your father in heaven would be glorified. He carries over throughout and the rest of his teachings, as do the rest of the New Testament apostles and teachers, that concept of father. It carries from uh, the Old Testament all the way through with a concept that God wants to be in relationship with us. The entire Old Testament is about that relationship with the nation of Israel beginning with Abraham, right, the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham was a father. The Jews claim him as father. So do the Muslims because of um, Abraham. Uh, birth. Isaac was his son. He was the father of Isaac. And he was also the father of Ishmael through uh, an illegitimate relationship with uh, Hagar, as we know. And you know that story. Well, if you don't, you can go read it and look it up. But it's all about relationship. God, our Father, is about relationship. And I take such uh, comfort in that. When I'm struggling, when I'm really wrestling with things and the world's against me or I'm having issues with all kinds of things, it could be when it's in the business world or dealing with issues in ministry, finances, whatever it happens to be, uh, people issues, familial family issues and stuff, just have to fall back on the fact that I've got a Father. I've got a Heavenly Father that I don't understand like I should, but I know enough to know what he tells me, that he loves me, and I, I was created in his image for fellowship and relationship. He wanted to be in relationship with me, and that just, man, that's exciting. I, I really uh, love thinking about that. There's a verse in Romans 8. I, I mentioned to you last time, we, we referred to Romans 8 quite a bit. Romans 8 is, is just one of the richest chapters in the Bible, 
And I'm going to read verses 15 and 16 here. Actually, I'm going to start at 14. Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, and we're going to talk about him in a minute, are sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, again, but you've, re- listen, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children were also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. And so we have the spirit of adoption of sons. Paul writes it so beautifully and articulately that we are adopted as sons. Again, it's that father relationship. And he goes a little bit deeper here because the Abba Father, and you can look in your notes in a study Bible or anywhere you Google that, look it up. That Abba is more of a daddy. It's a very familiar, it's a very personal relationship. Abba fathers, like if my children, when they're little, call me daddy, call me daddy, and then dad, and kind of just closer than father. He doesn't call me father. Father sounds to most of us, you know, very formal and sort of aloof and not the intertwined, interwoven, close relationship. And so Paul reminds us in Romans 8, look, this relationship is deep. We cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out, Daddy, when I'm praying, when I'm crying, when I'm crying out, whatever. I'm crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, help me. Just like your children cry to you, Daddy, help me. Daddy, protect me. Daddy, I'm scared. It's the same thing. It's the same kind of a relationship. So too many people are put off by God because they think he's out there somewhere. They don't understand it. And they read the Bible and it's all kinds of stuff. that You think, what? What? Who would write something like that? Uh, Look at these words. Look at these teachings throughout where he just talks about being our father, our daddy. And then as it goes all the way through the Old Testament, where the Jews, the nation of Israel, was constantly obedient, constantly running off with other nations and intermixing and doing things that God told them not to do. And throughout the Old Testament, one of the phrases most often used by God of his people playing the harlot, playing the harlot. And crass, straight up words, he was calling them a bunch of whores. And he did throughout the Old Testament. And you can look that up if you don't think I'm right there. Many times he called them of his children. He said, you are playing the harlots. You went down this road of whoredom. I mean, it's, it's, it's strong language because God, our father, just like your father did, like I did expect of my children, I expect a certain standard. I've given them the law, if you will, the rules. We've raised them in the way we think they should go, according to biblical teachings. God gave them the law and nurtured that through the teachings of Moses and then again with prophets. Um, And his expectation was that we would obey this law, that we would obey what he's laid out for us. And when we do not, as a father, it stirs up his anger and wrath and punishment and the judgment that comes with that. But then he's forgiving and loving like a father to receive them back when they repented. And Israel did that on occasion. And so the Old Testament is up and down of disobedience, uh, going out there, playing the harlot, uh, getting all kinds of trouble, being overrun by the nations, screaming not to God, their father, Abba, father. And then he rescues them again. But throughout, but eventually, finally, he says enough, just like a father or a mother in a relationship where you've got such a disobedient child that they are destroying your home, that they run off into 
you know, other kinds of things, addictions or other lifestyles, things that you totally abhor and you know are contrary to the word of God. And you finally have to say enough. I love you. I said this to my own kids. I love you. There's nothing you can do to keep me from loving you. Not one thing. But I don't like what you're doing. And I don't love that. And if you keep it up, that will break our relationship. It breaks a relationship just like it does with God. Sin broke that relationship in, in the very first sin with Adam and Eve. Going back to Genesis 3 world, sin broke that. And the father now is grieved with his children, but that, and they are still his children. But that relationship is broken. It's broken. And that's a great segue to lead us into the second person of the Holy Trinity, which is God the Son. God the Son. And we know him as Jesus. We know him as Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Now, just so you'll know that Christ, Christos, means Messiah or anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. So when they said Jesus was his name, um, because the angel told Joseph he'll save his people from their sins, the same Jesus, and they'll put the Christ on it. So the Jews didn't like that, and they still don't. The Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one, is the one they're waiting on. But he came and was among them. And so Jesus was that God incarnate. And what does incarnate mean? It means he came in the flesh. Because remember, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Father, Godhead is spirit. It is spirit. And yet Jesus came in the flesh to dwell among us, as, as John wrote so articulately and beautifully in John 1. It's, it, a lot of it kind of reads like some of the verses in Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. It's, it's wonderful, wonderful reading and explains a lot about that beginning, but also the father-son relationship. That God the Father, Jesus the Son, because it's hard to understand. What, what do you mean it's the Son? Well, he's the Son in the sense that, so we can understand this. Jesus did not need to come as a man except for one thing. When this relationship was broken between the Father and his children, us, there was only one way to fix it. And how do we fix it? We call that redeeming or redemption. And so God is all about relationship. God the Father, Jesus the Son, is all about being our redeemer or redemption. Now, what does that word redeem mean? Let me think about it for a minute. It simply means to buy something back. If you, In the case of, of our relationship with God and Jesus as a redeemer, it's deeper than that because Again, when we sinned, when Adam sinned, and we've all sinned, like Paul said, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we've got to, something to fix that relationship. We need a redeemer. We need to be redeemed or bought back. We sold ourselves to sin. We sold ourselves to sin, to Satan and sin. We did. Adam started it. And we continue it. We've sold ourselves into a life of sin and a broken relationship with God the Father, our Abba Father. That relationship is broken. It is severed. And the only way to have that healed is redemption. And so that word redeem in Greek just means to buy back, to get it back into a right relationship. And so that was the purpose of Jesus coming as a son in the flesh, as was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, that, look, I'm going to fix this. You broke it back in the Genesis 3 world and throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets, there are all these prophecies of Messiah coming, incredibly accurate. And we've talked about those before, and you've heard many people teach and preach on that. Messiah was foretold to come. Why? 
pretty simple. In uh, Matthew chapter 1, again, I mentioned it a minute ago, Joseph speaking to, excuse me, the uh, angel speaking to Joseph. And he said, uh, a child's been conceived in Mary. Don't worry about that because that child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's not your baby. It's not her baby. That child is conceived completely by the Holy Spirit in her womb. She's going to be the mother to bear it. And you shall call his name Jesus. The angel said, we've already got the name. You're not going to call him Joseph or Joe Jr. or something like that. You're going to call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. You'll find that in Matthew 1 before you get to the Christmas story or as part of the Christmas story before you get to the rest of it. That's so familiar with the manger scene and all that stuff. Angel tells Joseph, this baby is the one, the chosen one, the anointed one. And you're going to be the earthly father. And I know you didn't, um, you didn't sire him. He's not from your seed. But in a sense, he will be because you're from the line of David. Mary was from the line of David. Isn't that cool? Because God told David, there will never be anyone on the throne of Israel who's not from your seed or your line. I'm getting chill bumps as I speak of it. The king of kings, the Lord of lords come from the line of David and will rule and reign again. Didn't when he came, not the first time. But, oh, my goodness, when he comes a second time, it's all over for those who have continued to deny him and spit in his face and follow Satan and do all these things we see today all over our world and especially in our nation. As a nation, why? Because we have national sins, and I've talked about that before. Christ came for one reason, to redeem us, to save his people. He didn't come to save nations. People are hung up on the national aspect of it. No, it's about a relationship. God the Father, one-on-one with his sons and daughters. Jesus Christ, man, Messiah, come in the, came in the flesh about a relationship with you and me, sons and daughters. We will be heirs. We'll be joint heirs is what we just read. We'll be heirs adopted into the fellowship, into the, into the sonship, daughtership of our Father God, Abba Father. Jesus came to redeem us. It's all about relationship. It's not about something I can't understand and God seems so distant or I don't understand that or atheists. Look, I don't believe in a God. It's just, it's too far-fetched. It's too far-fetched. It doesn't make any sense. I can look at things and say, well, this evolved this way and that way. (laughs) That is so much more science behind creation and what we believe as Christians than there is anything to do with evolution. Evolution is, is an excuse for lost people not to believe. That's my, you can disagree. That's my take on it after many, many years of study. It is what it is. If you believe there's a God, then there's some accountability and you're going to have to answer to that God. And for those who don't want to do that, we're not going to talk about God as a father. We're not going to talk about Jesus as a savior, as a redeemer coming into the world to redeem us. We're not going to do that. Why? Because I know there's accountability. And and so as long as I deny that, um, I can sit there and say, I'm denying it. Look, it's, I'm not, it's not going to rain. It's not going to rain. You can go outside and get soaked and just be in denial and say, you know what? It's not raining. It's not raining. Uh, you know, things like that. My car's not going to run out of gas while you're sitting on the side of the road, totally out of gas. You can deny these things that are truth, but it doesn't mean they go away and that they're not truth. And so people that live in denial like that, they're just doing it because they have to. Otherwise, they have to confront the truth that God is real, that God does love them. He is their father. There is a broken relationship that Christ came is the only way to redeem and to make that right. 
but they don't want to give that up. Satan's got a stronghold on them, or they're simply so full of themselves, they don't want to let that go. And you and I have been in one of those two places. We have. Paul said that, listen, we were just as guilty of all of that sin. So I don't, I don't condemn sinners other than to say God has condemned you. I don't. I was a sinner just like them. I was doing all kinds of stupid things, things that you did as well. I don't judge these people that I talk about or call out this sin, whether it's the national sins or others. It's still sin, but it's no worse than my sin. And my sin had to be cleansed. It had to be taken away. It had to be removed so that I could be redeemed. And the only way that could happen was through blood. And that was the blood of Christ who came to save us from our sins. Jesus' ministry started, at least the part that we know from the New Testament, there are all those missing years from the time he was 12 till he was 30. But when Jesus began his ministry, he came and was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. Then he went off into the desert for 40 days and was tempted by Satan. When he, was coming, when he came back out of that, that's in Matthew 4, and he begins his ministry. And Matthew sets it up this way to frame and start Jesus' ministry, because it tells us what his motive and his mission were. His motive was one thing and one thing only. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His motive was to call sinners to repentance, save his people from their sins. In Luke 5, 32, he's teaching again. And he said, listen, I didn't come to call the righteous. It was a bit of a, a kind of a joke, really, because he knew there weren't any righteous, but he, but there were those who perceived themselves as righteous, like Pharisees and you know, the others who were righteous religious people or those who considered themselves righteous because they followed the law. They said, well, you don't need a savior. You don't, you don't need to You're righteous. You're good, which obviously was a joke. But he said, I didn't, call, I didn't come to call the, the righteous to repentance. I came to call sinners to repentance. Those who understand and know they are sinners who are broken in their sin and are desperate for a savior. That's what Jesus, our redeemer, did. So God was our father in that relationship with us as his children, adopted in through Christ, our Redeemer, our Lord, our Savior. And it leads us to the last person, the person of the Holy Spirit, perhaps the most mysterious in some ways of the three persons of the Trinity, because I think some churches and some religions and denominations are just afraid of the Holy Spirit. You know, they have seen uh, different groups, sects or cults or radical kind of things going on, people claiming to use the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and maybe they are. I'm not, I'm not doubting that. I'm just saying that the way this has come down through my lifetime, I think some people are scared to death of it. Others will teach that there's a cessation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I think that's absolute nonsense and terrible Bible teaching. But let's just talk about the Holy Spirit and who that person of the Trinity is for just a minute. His job is reformation. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago when we were talking about reforming and reformers, and we mentioned Martin Luther and how the Protestant Reformation started and the, the verse in Romans 1, it was but appears first in Habakkuk 2.4, you know, the just shall live by faith. That's about reformation and reforming. Well, Jesus told his disciples, and I'm going to read a couple of these passages to you, about the Holy Spirit. He gave them a heads up. Now, understand, as, as I've taught you before, you know, Jesus would, as he started talking about in John 14 and then again in John 16, the Holy Spirit coming, he was also telling them 
listen, I've been telling you all along, I'm going away. I'm leaving. I'm going to be, we're going to Jerusalem one last time. I'm going to be given over. I'm going to be abused and brutally murdered. But then I'm going to rise on the third day and I'm going to conquer death and sin. You know, probably, well, 11 at this time because Judas had left the building. They're thinking, wait a minute, Lord, this has been a sweet ride. Don't, what do you mean you're going somewhere? You see, he was telling them, look, if I don't go, you're not going to have the power to do these things. Because right now, as they walked around those three years, the power and everything they saw was the power of God, the power of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, doing miracles and amazing things that just blew people away. And they followed him. They followed him. And some believed and some just liked the miracles and the sweet ride for a while. And, and it said many walked away and he followed him no more. Why? Because it got hard. Because toward the end, he started telling them, listen, I'm going to die. They're going to hate me and kill me. They're going to hate you and eventually kill you too. I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up for that. Let me share with you in these two verses I was talking about in John 14, 26. I'm going to read the chapters, John 14, John 16, to learn more about the Holy Spirit and what Jesus said about him. Those are the two chapters. I'm just going to give a couple verses because our time is getting short. In John 14, 26, Jesus speaking to the disciples said, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. The Father sends the Holy Spirit to us. Why? He's a part of the reasons, not all of them. He's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Look, they didn't have a Bible. They didn't even have the scrolls. None of this stuff was written down. There wasn't someone running around behind him writing all this stuff down. Now, Paul had scribes, and, and there were scribes in the Old Testament, and, and some of it worked that way as the apostles began to write things down. But while they're going along, I think there's, there's, no, there's no word that says we're writing all this stuff down. That's why there are differences between Matthew and uh, Matthew was a disciple. John was a disciple who wrote years later. Mark was a follower of Peter, but probably the one that ran away naked in the garden. Luke was just a Gentile that got saved. And so he was a doctor, physician, so he wrote a lot of details. Four Gospels, all a little bit different. John, the last Gospel, it's not one of the synoptic ones, very different. But talking about this role of the Holy Spirit, God said, I mean, Jesus said, listen, I'm going to send him to help you remember these things. And I'll tell you this from my, my life, and, and it should be true of yours, the Holy Spirit, part of this helps me remember the verses that I've memorized. I've memorized a lot of scripture over the years, but the older I get, I can't remember. I've told John 3:16. let's see, for God's love of the world. The Holy Spirit will call things to your remembrance to help you remember at the right time when you need to know it. If you say, Lord, help me to remember that verse over in you know, Romans 12, 2, because uh, I need to teach that right now. I haven't got my Bible handy. And so the Holy Spirit was just going to help them remind them of all the things that they saw, all the miracles that they saw, of all the things that Jesus said. Because John told us toward the end of his gospel, if all these things were written down that he said and did in just those few years, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. It was a pretty full, prolific three years. But the Holy Spirit, part of his role is to help us do that, help us through that. That's part of it. In John 16, he goes on to say, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. You're going to know the difference between right and wrong. You're going to know when you're stepping across that line. If you're walking in the spirit, as Paul tells us to do, we walk in the spirit, therefore let us live by the spirit. The spirit of God will say, Walter, don't do that. Don't watch that. Don't go there. Don't think that thought. 
It's called conviction. The Holy Spirit comes to convict us of all truth. And the truth is, I still am a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. And so I don't want to live in a lifestyle of sin, but I still do sin. But the Holy Spirit has come to convict us and guide us in all truth. He doesn't speak on his own initiative. Whatever he, he hears, he speaks and will disclose to you what is to come. And he's called the comforter, the helper, the power, dunamos, and the paraclete, the helper to come alongside. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Godhead, and he's fully God. If God the Father, who is fully God, and God the Son, Jesus, who's fully God, and God the Holy Spirit is no less God than God the Father and God the Son, and I can't explain it to you any more than that. What I do want to do is to share a couple more verses as I wrap this up. In Romans 12, too, and that one I don't have to go look up anymore. Paul admonishes us to be transformed by the renewing of your minds, right? To be transformed by the renewing of your minds. How does that happen? You and I have zero chance to transform or reform our minds, our way of life. We don't. We can try all we want to. The great analogy there is I'm with men in prison or men and women in, in uh, missions or places where they're dealing with drugs and addiction. And they've tried many times to get out of that addiction. Many times. And in the flesh, they have failed. And the same thing with us. I mean, try to get out of certain sins and things that keep coming back. Paul talked about recurrent sin and things kept being a thorn in the flesh. We all have those. We all have those. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can allow him to be transforming us. And don't get discouraged because sometimes it's three steps forward and two back or one forward and five back. It doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. It means the Holy Spirit is working on us. We are being transformed. It doesn't say that you are transformed, boom, and now you're perfect. Paul says we're being made perfect. You're saved. Your salvation is secure. You're in Christ. Sanctification is that process of being set apart, being conformed. But it's a process. And this side of heaven, we're not going to arrive there. We're going to be made perfect on the other side. All things new. And that's the last verse I want to share. In Revelation 21.5, it's that amazing picture where everything's coming to a close. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem coming down. John was told this in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. But it's over there. It's not now. And so in the meantime, in the meantime, we have to examine our own motives in alignment with Jesus and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're going to do that next time. And if you're in Christ, I hope this is encouraging your heart and helping you to examine your own motives. Those things that don't live in the past. Don't worry about what you think of yourself or others say about you. Don't go there. Don't live in fear. Understand the motive of God the Father is a relationship with you personally. That's so wonderful, so comforting. That my Father loves me, and there's nothing I can do to make him not love me. That's really cool. That Jesus died, gave his life for my miserable life. Oh, hard to speak that without just breaking down and weeping for joy, for the forgiveness of my sin, and then to be able to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, my gosh, the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to walk, to live and breathe. And what I like to say is to live and look and love more like Jesus. But oh, if you're not in Christ today, if you're one of those who keeps rejecting this and you have for so long, let this be the day. Let it be that something that the Holy Spirit spoke through me convicted you, pierced your heart 
and you said, yeah, I need a savior. I need a savior. I need to be forgiven of my sin. I, I've screwed it all up. It was, we all did. <laughs> we all did. And so let your salvation come today, right now. Don't wait anymore. You don't know that you've got another breath to breathe. You don't. That's not trying to scare you. It's just telling you the truth. Father God, in, in this final moment, would you, by your spirit, your wonderful Holy Spirit, the transforming, reforming Holy Spirit, the power, the dunamis of the Holy Spirit, would you give someone here the unction the move toward salvation because they realize, man, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I need a Savior. If he's the one, I need Jesus. And so I'm going to believe that right now as we're closing this up. And for those listening, the others, Lord, thank you for them. Thank you, God. Give them, give them encouragement through these words. Help them to examine our own motives, as we're going to look at next week. Thank you for our time. But mostly, thank you for being our blessed Father who sent the Son, who sent the Holy Spirit, for Christ's sake. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.